Anyone can be great because anyone can serve. Those are words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And they remind us of the words of Jesus who said, I came not to be served, but to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. On the night before he was crucified, when the weight of the world was on his shoulders, Jesus took a towel and a basin and he washed the disciples' dirty feet. And by that one simple gesture, he showed forever what sort of person he was and what sort of people that we should be. Jesus came to serve, and in his death on the cross, he served all of humanity. What Jesus did was almost beyond our comprehension. He was the ultimate servant. Dr. King was right. Greatness is open to all of us because any of us can serve. Every one of us can serve. However, we generally don't realize this until a crisis comes into our life. Much of the time, we go along rather contentedly knowing that someone else is doing the serving. That's why we elect presidents and prime ministers and we hire managers and department heads and we hire people to serve us. Serving is fine with us as long as someone else is doing most of the work. And then a crisis comes along and we begin to see things a little differently. I'm told that the Chinese word for crisis is made up of two word symbols, one meaning danger and the other opportunity. So what a crisis is, it's a danger and an opportunity all rolled up together. Now our text today tells us the story of a sudden and unexpected controversy that threatened to rip apart the first century church. How it was handled, how the crisis became an opportunity, makes for a fascinating story. And as I study these verses, I'm struck by the way this passage begins and ends. So listen as we hear Dr. Luke tell us the story. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying, that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then the apostles can spend... We apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier uh, convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted as well. Now, verse 1 tells us that the crisis happened as the number of disciples were increasing. Verse 7 says that the word of God continued to spread as many people believed, and even some of the priests became obedient to the faith. Instead of derailing the church... This crisis propelled it to an even faster growth. Surely this was the mark of God's hand of blessing on this church. Even the bad things began to work out for good. 
Now, what happens in Acts chapter 6 takes place at the end of a, a period of severe persecution. Acts 4 tells us it was a time of spir unusual spiritual unity and sharing of possessions, a period of amazing spiritual harvest. Now, that should not surprise us. Satan often attacks us at the moment when things are going pretty well seemingly to divert the church from its God-appointed mission. In seven brief verses, Luke describes the problem, and then he gives us the solution, and then a very positive result. And when we get to the end, we discover that good things are happening, more people are serving, more people are, are being uh, one to Christ, and the unity of the church has been restored. Now, verse 1 sets up the problem. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Now, this is the first known case of what we might call racial prejudice in the Christian church. It comes about primarily because the church has grown so fast that it has outstripped its leadership base. In the early days, the apostles and their helpers could easily care for everyone in the congregation. As thousands began joining this new Christian movement, it was inevitable that some people or groups of people would fall through the cracks. The problem stemmed from the fact that although the early church was entirely Jewish, it was made up of two different groups of Jews. There were the Hebraic Jews, were Jewish Christian converts who spoke Hebrew or Aramaic, a Hebrew dialect, as their main language. They had been born and raised in Israel. They were native to the land. They knew the customs of the synagogue. Uh, they brought their extensive culture with them when they entered the church. By contrast, there were also Grecian Jews. They were also Jewish Christian converts, but they spoke Greek because they were raised outside of Israel. They might have been from Cappadocia or Galatia or Macedonia or Crete or Italy or one, other, or one of the other provinces of the Roman Empire. But when they came to Christ, they brought the Greek-speaking culture with them. And this means that they probably looked a little bit different, they acted a little bit different, they sounded different from the Hebrew-speaking Jewish Christians. Now this was clearly a recipe for trouble. As long as things were going well, the differences seemed to be ignored. However, the Jerusalem church was never a rich church, and eventually there were problems, in, one of them being in the daily distribution of food for the widows of these two groups. And the Hebrew-speaking Jewish Christian widows were being favored over the Greek-speaking Jewish Christian widows. And what we might have here is a simple case of the hometown widows being favored either consciously or unconsciously. After all, the Hebrew-speaking widows were from Israel, grew up in and around Jerusalem. They were well-known, had many connections, and after all, it's a natural human impulse to take care of your own, especially in times of trouble or shortage. Perhaps it wasn't done intentionally, but nevertheless, one of the groups of widows was being favored over another group. Now, I think it's easy for us to dismiss this as a pretty minor problem, but it wasn't for the church. If you were a Greek-speaking widow in the church of Jerusalem, it was a big deal because you weren't being fed. And when the widows weren't being fed, their friends got up in arms, 
So what might not matter to us too much looked pretty serious to the people involved and to their friends. It was a serious problem that demanded careful attention. You know, churches today routinely split up over much less important things than this. Now, I mentioned earlier that this was the first case of racial prejudice in the church, and you may say, well, that's not true racial prejudice. Well, I would suggest that treating people differently because of their culture or ethnic heritage or language is a place where racial prejudice often begins. So how should the church tackle this problem? Now, if it were up to us, we would probably appoint a food distribution committee. And we'd ask that committee to study the problem for a couple of months and report to the leadership team. Or we might call a prayer meeting and just decide to pray about it. Or we might have the outreach committee get together and begin to hash it out and come up with a solution. Maybe in some places, the congregation would even split up or decide to start a whole new church, the Jewish, Christian, Greek-speaking Church of Jerusalem. Well, maybe today we would even start separate services for these two groups to kind of keep them apart and figure all this out. The traditional Hebrew-speaking group at 9.30 and the contemporary Greek-speaking group at 11. You see, we can put this in our own terms. Certainly seems a relevant problem for us today. But in verses 2 through 6, it tells us how the early church confronted this very difficult issue. And the solution involves a four-step process. First of all, there was a need to set priorities. There was this, that was the immediate response. So the 12 called a meeting of all the believers. Secondly, there was a clear statement of their priorities. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. Whenever I read those words, I always stop and think about how, uh, about, about them because at first glance, it seems a little bit harsh. And I can easily imagine that certain people in the church said something like this, you know, wouldn't it be great if these apostles just got together and took over the feeding of the Greek-speaking widows? After all, you know, they're hired by us. They're the church staff. We pay them to do it. That would have been a powerful, that would send a powerful message to the congregation. It would be healing. It would bring the two groups together. After all, these apostles are all Hebrew-speaking Jews. And it would prove that they're really concerned about the Greek-speaking widows. Deep in my soul, I really believe that someone in the Jerusalem church either said that or at least thought that. After all, what could be better for the, for, than the leader setting the pace, right? Personally solving this problem. It's so easy. It's so tempting to adopt that strategy. But it would have been the wrong strategy. That touchy-feely idea would actually have caused the apostles to disobey God's will for them. They understood that God had called them to a spiritual ministry, to teaching the Word of God, to preaching, and to prayer. And anything that moved them away from that priority, no matter how good, how noble, how necessary, was actually a diversion from their divine calling. Now, I think the same principle holds true for spiritual leaders in general. In any church, there are a lot of tasks that need to be done. And it's tempting to say, hey, let the pastor do it. Let the church staff do it. Let the leadership of the church do it. 
We expect you to do a little bit of everything. But in most places where that's happening, it's leading to spiritual disaster. See, when leaders do a little bit of everything, they end up doing a whole lot of nothing. And since the church was built on the Word of God, the primary role of the pastors and staff must be to devote themselves to the study and teaching of the Bible and to, the, and to prayer, and nothing should be allowed to take the place of that central priority. I read the story of a pastor who put a sign on his office door which said, Do not disturb, I'm in study and prayer. See, the congregation had told him when they hired him they wanted him to focus on the spiritual ministry of the church. And they would watch over the needs of the congregation, and so he was able to devote his time to his primary task. Obviously, we've moved into another era of church life today, with pastors now being responsible for supervising large budgets, multiple programs, a mountain of administrative details, not to mention the many personal needs of individuals and families. But no amount of cultural change can obscure the basic truth that spiritual leaders need to focus their efforts on the Word of God and prayer and fiercely resist attempts to divert to other worthy causes. Now, this may seem a little hard-hearted, but it's really nothing more than having a biblical focus. We must not ever let the good crowd out the best or allow the urgent to push, to push the important off the agenda. And since no one can do everything, spiritual leaders must commit themselves to the primary work that they've been called to do, and that's ministering the Word of God and spending time in reflection and prayer. And before I go any further, I want you to know that I believe that. I believe every word of that, but there's, that's only part of the story. It's all well and good for these apostles to have been high-minded about their calling, but they still had this group of widows on their hands that were not being fed. And what were they going to do about that? After all, if they didn't get fed, there wouldn't be, they wouldn't be in a mood to listen to the apostles' teaching. They still needed a plan to deal with this problem. So the plan began with congregational involvement. Brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will give them the responsibility. And then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the Word. There was both a clear statement of the qualifications necessary and there was a commitment to delegate the responsibility to the people who could make it happen. There was also a restatement of their own priorities. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. And that strikes me as a pretty wise approach to the problem. Rather than issuing some edict from on high, they asked the congregation to get together and come up with a solution to choose the people who would serve the widows. And the statement of personal qualification shows us that they, what they wanted was seven spiritually gifted, mature people who would immediately have the respect of the entire church. And once these people were chosen, they could attack the problem in any way they wished while the apostles focused on their primary calling. All in all, pretty good way to handle this problem. But Luke tells us that this proposal won unanimous approval. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following, and he names the seven they chose. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. Now, what's unique about this list is that these were all Greek names, meaning the congregation chose men not from the Hebrew side 
of the congregation, but from the Greek-speaking side, these men no doubt knew the widows personally. They would have the trust of the Greek-speaking believers, and they would know how to handle any problems that might arise. So here's the final step in the process. After the congregation selected these seven, they were presented to the apostles who laid hands on them and prayed for them. And that final step is important because it put the full weight of the 12 apostles behind the mission, the ministry of these seven. It also ensured that the Greek-speaking widows would know that they weren't being pushed off into a corner, that their concerns were addressed seriously at the very highest level, it also sent a message to the congregation that the problem had been dealt with in a timely manner and the apostles truly wanted to see these Greek-speaking widows being fed. So verse 7 then brings us to the end of this little episode from the early church. And first, uh, uh, there is a new receptivity to the message as a result. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests even were converted. So by God's grace, an interruption that threatened to divide the church became an opportunity for growth. So what are we to learn from this story? Well, I as I wrap up this message, I want to invite you to consider four important truths. The first one is the importance of proper priorities in the work of the Lord. The apostles understood their calling, which is why they refused to personally get involved in feeding the widows. What seems harsh and uncaring was actually best for all concerned. Sometimes leaders have to say no to the good in order to say yes to the best. You see, the church starves spiritually when leaders begin to focus their energy on everything else but the word of God and prayer. You've heard this before, it's keep, important to keep the main thing the main thing. It is easy to say that little slogan, but very difficult to put into practice. In every organization, there are a thousand pressures that constantly pull us away from our core concerns. And in God's work, it's no different. We must constantly be building everything around the Word of God in prayer. That's why, you know, sharing Bibles six times in a student's life is so important for us. This is a core piece of who we are as a church. In God's work, we must constantly be building everything around the Word of God. When we do that, other concerns can be addressed and handled. But when we forget that, the church suffers. Now, a second truth is the impossibility of a few people doing all the work in a local church. This follows kind of logically. The apostles couldn't do their work and feed the widows too. The same is true in every church today. No pastor, no staff member, no leader in the life of a church can do it all. Oh, I know there's a few super talented individuals out here in our congregation who can do nine things at once, and uh, they're really talented. They can do them all well, but in the local church where there are hundreds and hundreds of things that need done every week, we need hundreds and hundreds of willing hands to do it. Here at Redeemer, I can preach and teach and write and work and with our leadership team and lead the staff and meet with people and pray for the hurting and the visit the sick and I attend some meetings and answer some questions and take some phone calls and do some visioning and those kinds of things and, and plenty more. I stay plenty busy. But no matter how hard I work, I cannot preach and work in the nursery at the same time. 
I certainly don't want to play the piano or any of the other instruments on this stage. And you ought to be really grateful to God that you don't have to listen to me sing. So there are talented people who can do all these things. If you have some spare time, I invite you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, because here the Apostle Paul talks about the variety of spiritual gifts that God gives to each of us to build up the body of Christ. God never intended that one person or a group of people do all the work in the local church. And I'm not saying that because we have problems in this area. Here at Redeemer, uh, uh, this is the most gracious, non-demanding church I've ever been a part of. The congregation gives me and the other staff members enormous freedom to do our work, and we have one of the highest involvements by volunteers of any church I know of. But my point is that no matter how hard we work, we can't do everything that needs to be done. We can't do it all because God never intended the church to work that way. We need every one of you to do your part as well. Here's the third truth. The blessing of many people using their gifts in many ways. This is kind of the flip side of what I just said. Think about this text. In the beginning, the widows were going hungry. Their friends got upset. And what happens? Got a whole congregation or half of the congregation that were getting angry. And anger always threatens the unity of the body of Christ. So by the end, the anger was gone, the widows were fed, the seven were now serving the Lord and recognized by the whole congregation. This is precisely how the body of Christ was designed to function. So let this sentence think, sink deeply into your mind. No one does everything, but every one of us can do something. That's God's plan for the local church. Some do more, others can do less, but every one of us can do something. And here's the fourth and final truth. The value of serving others through practical deeds of kindness. Many Bible commentators say that these first deacons were elected in Acts chapter 6. The Greek word for deacon means servant. The verb literally means to wait on tables. And it's used by the apostles here in verse 2. These first deacons and later deaconesses waited on tables, as it were. They were the people who were ministering to others through the practical deeds of love and kindness in that local church. They rolled up their sleeves and they got busy helping people in a variety of ways. Let me make one point clear. The apostles would have been out of the will of God if they would have been the ones trying to wait on tables by themselves. The seven were chosen by the congregation. They were in God's will because they were the ones doing what God had called them to do. They obeyed God by serving the widows just as the apostles uh, were trying to obey God uh, when they ministered the word of God. It's not an either-or proposition. We need leaders who will devote themselves to the Word of God and to reflection and to prayer. We also need volunteer servants who will serve the needs of the local church. Both are absolutely necessary for the church to function. We are a community of believers who are seeking to bring our neighbors one step closer to Jesus Christ by meeting their needs through acts of love and compassion and service. That's why we have the outreach ministries that we have here. 
we recognize that the Holy Spirit is the only one who's going to bring that person into a relationship with Jesus, but we can break down the walls of resistance by getting involved in meeting genuine human need. There are lots of ways that everyone in this congregation can get involved. But it begins with your willingness to say yes, to see a need and fill it. We have a volunteer application that everybody fills out, and if you're working with children or youth or vulnerable adults, we do background checks. We're required to do that like so many organizations today. And from time to time, we also offer training opportunities for our volunteers. We want you to feel equipped to do the tasks that you've signed up to do. We have an active risk management team that offers uh, training and what to do in various emergency situations. But here's my point. We want you to identify the talents, the gifts, the skills that God has given you to serve others in Jesus' name. It just might be spending some time shopping for food, for the food pantry. It might be working in the nursery. It might be teaching a class. It might be shoveling snow in the winter. But God has gifted all of us for some part of this ministry. And my hope is that every person in this community will sooner or later have had some contact with Redeemer Church. I think that's doable. It will take hundreds of people serving in hundreds of ways to reach that goal, but it can be done. The most precious gift, the most precious commodity that any of us have is time. Sometimes we'd rather watch somebody else serve and write a check than get involved personally. And yet God is calling us to give our most precious commodity time to be a friend to those in need, to share God's love with them. Anyone can be great because anyone can serve. And I think Dr. King was right. Not everyone can be great in the eyes of this world. Not all of us are going to end up rich and famous, but any of us can be great because serving others within the is what Jesus has called us to do. You will never be more like Jesus than when you are serving someone else. Let's pray. God, we invite you to be with us when we are fearful and help to make us faithful. We invite you to be with us when we are faithful to make us fruitful. We invite you to be with us when we are fruitful to make us humble. For it is only by your grace that we are chosen to serve you, and it is only by your strength that we are even able to serve and it is only by your faithfulness that we are serving you today. So help us to be faithful servants in small things and in greater things, and to realize that there is lots of work yet to be done as we build your kingdom in this place. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray.